Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord. You are perfect and good, and you're here with us now. Your spirit is strong. Your word is powerful. Your people listen, Lord, so speak. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue in worship. If you weren't here just a few minutes ago, my name is Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy. Welcome here. We're delighted you're here to worship with us. Um, we plan our sermon series months in advance. Often um, things are well in play. Um, this morning we asked the question, what should we do when tragedy strikes? And that title was there long before this weekend ever happened. If you are a member of our church's prayer chain, you saw that indeed our very own church family was affected this week by that very thing when a one-year-old by the name of Temperance drowned in her bathtub. But God is good. I sit and I watch her grandma sing on the front row. Because God is good. I very much would have liked to have started this sermon in a different way. Um, in fact, I have a much lighter illustration, hopefully, to help us transition. But I want to show you a picture here of a small tragedy that occurred in our family. When I say small, I mean small. Uh, this is a teacup. And I already asked my daughter's permission to show this picture. This is not the actual teacup. But what happened is this, is one of her Sunday school teachers knew that she likes tea parties and dolls and all good, girly, imaginary things. And so she gave her a teacup. This was a special teacup. It was from her Sunday school teacher. It was pretty. It was nice. We guarded it carefully. We, in fact, told our daughter, please keep this in your room where there's a carpet and where it won't fall on the hard floors and break. And she did. She kept the teacup, but she brought the saucer to the kitchen. It came out for some reason or another. I don't even remember. And we saw it sitting there, and we were careful. We asked questions. And then our meal was ending, and we said, okay, you know, take your plate to the sink and rinse your dishes and she began to do so and as she was doing so the sleeve of her garment just caught the edge of her saucer and all over the floor our daughter's look on her face you can imagine was one of shock she went and out came the tears and the emotions and it brings to mind this question, what do we do when tragedy strikes? For no matter how great or how small indeed all will feel its effect at some point in time. We laugh about little teacups, but there are things obviously that are much worse. But teacup or no, the question remains, what do we do when tragedy strikes? Ruth 
chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, will answer that question for us today. How to handle the tragic? What do we do when the worst becomes reality? The path I want to take is in two steps this morning. I want to say what not to do and what to do. So if you're taking notes, there's your outline. Number one, what not to do. Number two, what to do. Ruth chapter one, we'd invite you to follow along in your Bibles if you have one. If you do not, feel free to follow along on the screen. Also, we have blue Bibles in the back that you can borrow. And if you don't have one, by all means, please take one home. Ruth chapter one, verses one through five say this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech or El-E-Melech, the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of the two sons were Malon, which means sickly or weak, and Chilion, which means frail. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. So in theory, there's hope. But unfortunately, when worse comes to worse, these two young men take Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the other Ruth. Now, they lived there about 10 years, and both Malin and Chilion died. So Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. What should she do? Naomi's situation in this context is much worse than perhaps many of us even imagine. For us, perhaps there's some sort of safety net. Maybe there's distant relatives, or maybe there's government programs or other things, ministries that we can be a part of. But for Naomi, this was it. Her first hope was her husband. Her second hope was her sons. Her third hope was their sons, and they're all gone, dead. What should she do? Well, actually, as we look a little bit closer, what we see is the tragedy goes back a bit further When first the famine hit the land, that was when the family made their first decision. And we're not really told, was this Elimelech's decision, or was this Naomi's decision, or whose decision was it? More than likely, it was the man's, and therefore, she is simply a bystander in this horrible chain of events. She didn't probably make these decisions, and yet she is suffering the consequences that ever happened to you make a decision someone else makes a decision on your behalf and you suffer the consequences what do you do when tragedy strikes well Elimelech is what not to do let's look at him first Elimelech did in this situation listen to this it's easy to condemn him from way out front but listen he did what any normal leader would do Elimelech did what any normal leader would do. There was a famine in the land. His source of income literally dried up. 
It's an agrarian environment. He's supposed to raise crops in order to buy bread and feed his family. He can't do that in a dry and arid place. It's getting no rain. And so consequently, he looks around and says, hey, guys, we got to go. My uh, job has been terminated. Our company's been bankrupt. I've been transferred, whatever. It's time to leave. Let's get out of Dodge and go somewhere where I can do a little better for us. Makes sense. Completely logical. Limelech did what any normal human being would do, but God says we are not normal human beings. God's covenant people are different. He doesn't call us to be normal. Normal is wrong. He calls us to be different. So what then does God want if it's logical to go somewhere else? What was Elimelech supposed to do? His hands were tied. He had no hope, or did he? Well, what does God want? It is this. Here's the answer to that question. God wants his people to respond in keeping with their covenant. God wants his people to respond in keeping with their covenant, their deal, their contract, their agreement with him. The parameters which he set up within which they are to operate. There are some clear guidelines for them. Here is how our relationship is to work. It is framed in like this. And as long as you are operating within this framework, God is going to bless you. That's true of them and that's true of us. Now listen, our covenants are very different. We must be very careful not to mistake the old covenant for the new covenant. If that is the case, none of us should be wearing mixed fabrics this morning. Shellfish are off the menu. And if your children, most of them are left now, it's okay, Christy, have sinned, you need to stone them. You don't want that covenant. You want the new covenant. So before we go prosperity gospel and start claiming these promises as our own, let's make sure we know where we're at. But this is the old covenant, and their relationship was specified by a long list of litigation rules and laws. And what they say is this, is basically God spells out for them what to do. If it is a famine and it doesn't rain, he has an answer for that. Now, the text I'm going to quote is from a little bit later in history, so I realize it's not at the time of Elimelech, but this is the idea And the reason I chose this one is because probably you've heard it. It's often taken out of context. And that's why I want to remind you, be careful which covenant you're in. Unless you want all that goes with that covenant. So, here's what Elimelech was supposed to do. Here's his covenant. Here's the deal. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verse 13, it says this. God says to his people, look guys, when I shut up the heavens... So that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. Here's the verse you probably know. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. In other words, the Old Testament in its most simple form is You obey me, God says, and he will physically bless his people. You disobey them, and he will physically punish his people. So if it's not raining, here's your clue. 
You need to repent and confess and get right with me. And if you do, it'll start raining again. God can turn on and off the heavens, the rain, like a spigot. No big deal for him. On, off, up, down, whatever. Are you being faithful? So the response then that Elimelech should have had in his grid is, what does God want his people to do? If there's a tragedy, what do you do? Here's the response, old and new. Turn to God, repent, and pray. Turn to God, repent, and pray. Now, what did Elimelech actually do? Well, he turned away. He turned away from God. Now, wait a minute, Pastor Jeremy, hang on there. How is just making a little move turning away from God? Well, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, in their mindset, the way these people thought is basically the deities were territorial. So Yahweh is in the land of Israel. That's his domain. And Moab has the god Chemosh. That's his domain. If you go to Syria, it's different. If you go to Babylon, it's another. If you go down to Egypt, they've got their gods. And whichever team or whichever nation is winning at the time, that's the god who's in command or in control. So if there's no rain in Israel, that means Yahweh is not sufficient. He's not able to provide. But if Moab is doing a little bit better, that means their god is sufficient, and we should change teams or go over to him. It's a little bit like this. Let's say this weekend you're an assistant coach at, I don't know, Michigan State. For those of you who don't know what that means, they got slaughtered this weekend okay? in a bad way. And all of a sudden you go home and you're checking your mail. It's been a long day. Open your box. You look through. Oh, here's something from Ann Arbor. Hmm. I'm looking this and see what this is. You pull out your little paper paper opener. Uh huh. Dear Coach So and So, we might be interested if you would come over and how much? Done. <laughs> see you later. You can read the writing on the wall. It's time to switch teams, and that's essentially what Mister Elimelech did here in this passage. He said, "Hey, my team's not doing that great right now. I see that the grass is literally and metaphorically greener on the other side of the fence." I'm gone. He switches allegiance. He goes away from the problem. In reality, what we see is this starts the whole chain of events. This single decision is what brings the entire family down. How many of you have experienced a tragedy of a single decision brings many in the family down? problem here is not the famine. That is not the problem. The problem is their response to the famine. Instead of responding in keeping with the covenant that God gave him, he looks for an alternate option. And as they say in the Lord of the Rings, the road you take to avoid the thing you fear is often the fastest one that gets you there. What should we do when tragedy happens? Let's go back to that teacup for a minute. minute. And I think you'll see that playing out here in this passage as well. When the teacup or the, the plate fell and it shattered all over the floor, 
my daughter could have had a lot of different responses. You know, fortunately, her first response was just to cry. No offense, guys. If this happened to be one of my boys, it might have been a bit different. They might have just buckled down, gritted their teeth, not responded. They said, what's the matter? Is said, nothing. It's okay. Don't touch me. Okay. I'll be back in a bit. Whew. Just like their dad. <laughs> There's all kinds of responses you can have to tragedy. You can get mad, right? Like, this shouldn't have happened. Hey, don't ever call a bad thing a good thing, by the way. Even if you're a Christian, don't even think about it. Bad is bad. Even when God is good, bad is bad. And this situation is bad. Don't call it good. If you're late to work and you're upset and you're stuck in traffic and there's holes in the road and you're making someone else late, that's actually a bad situation. It's bad. You're sad that this other person's day is compromised because you can't be there on time. That's a legitimate feeling. Don't change what is bad to be made good. God never said that was good. In the beginning, he said it was good, but that was before sin. And then sin came, and it's not so good anymore. Don't ever call bad, bad, bad good, and vice versa. So here's the thing. The teacup shatters a lot of different responses. One is you can get mad about it. Another is you could blame somebody else. You know, she could say, if I didn't have to take my plate to the sink, my sleeve would have never caught that, and it would have never fallen on the floor. Therefore, it's your fault. Oh, okay, sure. Or maybe she could have just tried to ignore it. She could have looked the other way and just be like, it didn't happen, it didn't happen. I'm not going to pay attention. Or maybe we as parents could have overcompensated and we could have said, hold on, don't cry. Uh, you know that American Girl doll you really, really wanted? We're going to get it, don't cry. And we could have tried to like overcompensate the reality is we kind of laugh at this with a little teacup and a little girl, but we do all these things in our daily lives. Tragedy happens. What's one response? Mad at God. You did this. You could have stopped it. What's wrong with you? Hmm? Tragedy happens. Response number two. I don't don't want to see that. Not going to pay attention. Stuff it. Meditate it. Medicate it. Entertain it. Distract it. Shop it, buy it, Facebook it, whatever, but don't go there. Ignore. Push it away. We could blame somebody else. We could overcompensate. We could go and do something to help us feel better. All those are the wrong response. That's a limelech here in this passage, and it's the wrong path. Fortunately, in this situation, my daughter, who is not yet corrupted by all of those other things, did the right thing, and she just cried. She cried and cried. The thing is, there's a normal response, and there's a covenant response, and God does not want the normal. He wants his people to respond in keeping with their covenant, and this is what it looks like. This is how we respond to tragedy, okay? You have something bad happen in your life. If you know somebody who's had something bad happen in their life, this is what you do. When tragedy strikes, these are the three things. 
You lament, repent, and rest. Lament, repent, and rest. What do we do when tragedy strikes? Let me take that first one into consideration. The word lament, not one we use every day. Um, It's not one you hear on TV or anywhere else. What does it mean to lament? Here's a picture of that. This is the structure of what's known as a lament psalm. One of the beautiful things about the psalms is they help us to express what's going on in our hearts, what we feel, but we don't have the words to say. If you've read these psalms, sometimes you can say, man, this is thousands of years away, but yet it's here today. I feel that that's me. Here's what's happening there. In the lament psalms, they follow this process. They begin with an introductory cry to God. When something bad happens, that's the first place you start. Don't turn away. Don't ignore it. Don't get mad. Don't stuff it. Don't medicate it. Don't whatever. You just start as a covenant keeper to say, help. God, help. That's number one. That's it. You turn away. You're like, a bad thing happened in my life from this God. Therefore, I'm going to ignore him and go over to the other God. You're starting a great big chain of events that's way worse than whatever happened right there. You stay there. You don't leave. You don't run. Instead, the first thing you do is cry out to God. And you just say, help. Not that complicated. It's not fancy. It's not super spiritual. It's like you're going down the road 80 miles an hour, which you'd never do. And then somebody pulls out in front of you and you slam on the brake and say, help. Help. God, help. Boom. Number one is help. Just introductory cry to God. That's a big, big, broad category. Next, after that, it starts to cycle down a little. It's called the lament. And the lament is just like the cry. Now, again, if you're like me or you're like the little boy, you can probably count the number of times you've cried on your hand. You guys are probably like, wait, Pastor Jeremy, I hear you crying all the time. What are you talking about? That's when we're talking about Jesus. It's hard not to then. But when it comes to like my home life and other stuff, I think I can count the number of times I've cried on my one hand. There was my dad's death. That might have been twice. And I, there was at one time in sixth grade. And I don't know. After that, I don't know. That's where it kind of stops because somewhere we little boys learn that it's not cool to cry. And so we learn to do it. <laughs> then that gets built in. And all of a sudden we don't know how to cry anymore. Then we have real problems. And the problems come out in other forms like anger. And you know what that anger is? That's pain with a mask. He scraped his knee. He's mad. He's, he's, Really mad because he scraped his knee. <laughs> Just because he's hurt. So if somebody's angry, you may want to ask him what hurts. So here you are in the spot where you are hurt. And it's painful. And you can respond a lot of different ways. But the way the Bible wants you to sp- respond is the same way Eden responds. is just cry. Cry out to God. Cry out to your daddy. Cry out to your heavenly father. And if you don't know how to do that and you forgot, that's okay. He knows what you're doing. Go downstairs and hit the punching bag for a little bit. That works too. Hit the punching bag, ride the motorcycle, go the speed limit, do whatever you got to do, but cry out to God. That's number two, lament. 
So you start, you're like, God help. And then you're just, ah, lament. That's the point at which you cry out to God. But then you don't stay there. And the next step is your very most important step. The very most important one is the next one. The confession of trust. That's the yellow. If God is who we said he was, who he says he is, who history demonstrates him to be. If God is faithful, then we can trust him. If he's not, never mind, throw away the sermon, go home, have fun, who cares? But if God is faithful, if he is faithful, and we can count on that. Now understand, you cannot count on your circumstances. Weather changes, your health changes, your finances change, your jobs change, your relationships change, your family changes, everything else changes. So if you're looking at that stuff, you are never going to be happy because it's always in flux. But if you look at something that never changes, then there's hope. Step three, confession of trust. God, you are faithful. You are good no matter what. Who can say that this morning? I know there's one family that can. They would not be sitting here if they couldn't. God is good. God is faithful. God is true. God is just. No matter what. Number three. You have to get there. If you don't, you turn, you go the wrong way. It's going to get worse. You stay, you cry out to God, you lament, and then you confess your trust. Once you're there, you're on the right path. Then the next one goes from a confession of trust to the petition. Then you can ask. Once you've cried out to God, once you've broken and shared your heart, and once you've confessed your trust, then you can ask for help. Listen, there is no sense in asking for something that's outside your covenant, your contract, your terms. Why is it that we always ask for more money or better health? We think that'll fix our problems, but where in our contract or our covenant does it say God is going to give us more money? Where in our contract or covenant does it say God is going to give us perfect health? Where in our covenant or contract does it say that God is going to give us smooth sailing and easy life? Nowhere. In fact, pick up your cross and follow me is the thing I remember. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be tough. But even in that difficulty, God will show you his grace, his faithfulness, and his favor. So when you go through this process, you ask for what is inside those covenant boundaries. For Elimelech, it's to pray for rain. For us, it's to pray for grace and forgiveness and wisdom and patience and the fruit of the Spirit, which he gives without measure. Those are infinitely available to you, but we never take advantage of them. He says he will give us a heart of flesh instead of our heart of stone. But we sit there in our heart of stone and say, God, I don't need you. God, I don't want you. Give me money. Give me health. And what we really need to say is, God, you promised not money, not health, but a heart of flesh. Soften my heart so I can love you. Pray for a new heart. That's what he will give you. And then later, you'll get something else. Cry to God, lament, confess your trust, petition for what's within your covenant, and then give a vow of praise. It's amazing how when you go through the right 
process, somehow you end at this point automatically. We praise him in our pain and our sorrow. When you do that, you will. Somehow your heart will change. And by the end of the prayer, by the end of your time with him, you will feel better. You will feel better. The circumstance may not change, but you will. C.S. Lewis says, I pray not because it changes God, but because it changes me. Here's the process of lament. Now, before I go too far, I want to give you something I think is really important because it gets very confusing when we begin to talk about suffering. There's a lot of reasons we can come into suffering in our lives, and they're not all the same. But I just got done saying the first thing you need to do is repent, or sorry, lament, then repent and rest. I'll come back to that slide in just a second. Um, The first thing you need to do is lament. So you cry out to God. Next thing is repent. Why? Because we all sin. I mean, even if the suffering you're going through isn't a direct result of your own sin, maybe it's somebody else's sin, you can still repent. There's plenty of stuff we got on our own. We don't need any help from somebody else. There's lots to cover. It doesn't even have to be external. It could be internal. It could be a thought you had. It could be a feeling in your heart that you had towards someone else. It could be discontentment. It could be greed. It could be anxiety. It could be whatever. It, it could be your lack of trust or faith in God. And you need to confess that. Start with confession. Start with repentance. And then you move into rest. So the first thing is lament. The second thing is repent. And the third thing is rest. Now, let's show that slide, the reasons for suffering. Here's part of the reason this repentance is part of it. We're not under the old covenant. We're under the new. But even under the new God says that if you are one of his children, he loves you. And therefore, he's not going to let you run out into the street and get hit by a car. In fact, if you try to play in the street, he's going to punish you. He might take some of your toys away or he might make it hurt. Sometimes my kids are like, oh, you don't get in trouble. I'm like, oh, yes, I do. (laughs) It just hurts differently than when you do. And sometimes my trouble could be a lot more expensive than yours. Believe me, I don't want to be there, but I do want the Lord to correct me because I don't want to go down the path of destruction. And because he loves me, he corrects me. So if God is correcting you, don't ignore his discipline, my son. Instead, respond to it. It's a sign of his love. He cares about you. He doesn't want you to get hurt, and that's why he corrects you. Praise God for his punishment. Amen? Amen. God disciplines the sons he loves. That's the way it works. If you're not being disciplined... Then be concerned. That's when you should be concerned. So when you start this process, you could have suffering and it may be that you need to repent. Maybe. Might be your sin. Might not be. Might be. Here's some other reasons for suffering too. Next, you see this. It could be a result of someone else's sin. I, Jesus. Remember Jesus? Died on the cross. What did he do? Nothing Yet he suffered more than any of us. Why? For somebody else's sin. Sometimes we suffer for other people's sin. That's called following Christ. He suffered for other people's sin more than anybody else. So we take on some suffering, but not nearly as much as him. God knows what it's like to lose a son. He suffered for somebody else's sin happens 
Number three, result of living in a fallen world may not be your sin, may not even be their sin. Just the fact that the plate is broken. It's on the floor. It's broken. Eden didn't sin when she knocked that off. I didn't sin when I asked her to take her plate to the sink. There's no sin there whatsoever. It's just brokenness. It's the world we live in. Things are like that. There's bacteria and virus and yada, 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 and things go wrong. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. It's a fallen world. But there is a future. Number four, it could be a sanctifying trial. James says, hey, if you're suffering, count it all joy. Not easy, but that's the unnatural, supernatural, covenant-keeping Christian response. Doesn't make sense. But if we understand God's processes are good, then somehow through that lament process of suffering, we can count it joy. Number five, mystery known but to God. At some point you have to say, hey, I went through my list. It's none of this. I don't know. That's the book of Job. <laughs> if you want to know this quick summary of the book of Job, that's it. You know, like there's something going on in the cosmos. That's not between me or anybody else. It's between God, the devil, and who knows what his plan is. That's up to him. We're just going to have to leave it there. Don't come to people with trite or trivial or short answers for what might be a mystery only known but to God. So there's a lot of reasons we could suffer, but regardless of what it is, the process is still the same. Let's see if you can say that with me just to see if you're still here. The first two words... Rhyme with each other. I want to ask you the question and then we'll say it together. What do we do when tragedy strikes? We lament, repent, and rest. We rest. The only reason we can rest is because God is faithful. If God is faithful, then we can trust him. If not, don't bother, bother, why worry, go home. But if Jesus is who he says he is, he has really paid for our sins. He has really conquered sin and death. He is really coming back. And if he's really going to make a new heavens and new earth that's absolutely free from the presence of any pain or suffering, then in the end, it'll be okay. Regardless of what it is, we say by grace, through faith, believing our covenant-keeping God, that it'll be okay. Go back to that teacup for a moment. The story may sound a little bit familiar, but I left out one of the details. The, um, you remember the family store story from a while back about the shoes and the boys? What happened was this. When we were school shopping um, in the family store, there's not only clothing, but there's also this aisle that I would call like the junk aisle. And... I stuck my head down that junk aisle just for kicks, and all of a sudden, guess what I saw? Take a guess. It broke earlier. Teacups. Exactly right. I'm like, oh, teacups. Mm-hmm. I got an idea. So I went down the aisle, and I see this nice, shimmery, shiny little gold teacup. Turn it around. says, happy 40th. Perfect. 50 cents. Done. So we wrap it up all neat and nice and we go home and, hey, we got you a new teacup. 
If I who am evil know how to give good gifts to my children, how much more, how very much more, your heavenly Father who is in heaven to them who ask him. When stuff breaks and shatters, do not turn away. Don't turn away. Lament, repent, and pray. Like the teacup, we live in a broken world. Suffering and bad things happen. But, like the teacup, Jesus has already purchased a new one. His blood is more precious. His sacrifice more effective. His resurrection more powerful than all of our sin. One single act that Jesus did. One act is more powerful than every single bad thing we have ever done. The one thing that Jesus did is more valuable than anything we've ever lost. The one conquest that Jesus accomplished is more powerful than any on the other side. Jesus has overcome. When he is on the cross and he says it is finished, he means it. He's not just talking about the cross. He's talking about everything. Your warfare has ended. Your victory is won. Jesus is conquered. It's finished. God, you are faithful. What a mess we live in. We can't even walk down the street without getting our feet dirty. Half of it's dirt we step in on our own. The other half people throw on us. The other half we don't even know. That's three halves and you know what I mean. Lord, I just pray that you'll be with us. Give us your grace. We need you. We want you, we desire you, we don't understand you, but we can't live without you. God, fulfill your covenant to us. Show us your faithfulness. Show us your power. Forgive us for our sins. And help us to rest in you. In Jesus' name.